Are you growing weary of seeing pictures like this in the news and in the media? Growing numbers, it's rather alarming. And if you're a thinking person, this question is bound to have come to your mind. Why? Why? And because of unanswered questions, there is all sorts of theories floating around. Nature abhors a vacuum. We don't like for songs to end on the wrong chord. And we are not satisfied with the answers that we are getting from the news. Why is this happening? Well, I want to look briefly at six things and in depth at the final one, possibilities of why is this happening. For the last few months, the world has been rocking and reeling. As Hebrews says, everything that can be shaken is getting shaken. And we have the assurance from the Word of God so that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. And so one possibility as to why is this happening, maybe the COVID-19 virus is a human error. Maybe a laboratory in China that was experimenting with germ warfare let some get out or someone made a mistake or someone sabotaged it and they made a mistake. Or maybe some wild, wet meat market uh, generated some germs that got out of hand and now we have a flu from hell. Why is this happening? Could it be human evil? You know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories out there right now. And we all know that some leaders love to get the most mileage they can out of disasters to the point that you might think they've caused a disaster. So is this happening because of human evil? Is this happening because of the devil? Could it be the devil or could it be futility? The earth, the Bible says, has been subjected to futility to show man that he needs a savior. Is it judgment? Is God judging the earth? Is this one of those plagues from the book of Revelation? I don't think so. Those plagues wipe out over a third of humanity and more so. Or is this a wake-up call? Let's look at these. Could this be human error? The Bible says man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. You see it in babies. Just a few days old, here comes difficulty. And some people just become more and more difficult. And some people are bound to make mistakes. Psalm 39 says, Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. So people are going to commit errors. People are going to make mistakes. Could it be human evil? Could it be a conspiracy? Which one is it? Could it be a combination? Could it be the Trilateral Commission, or some dictator somewhere, or the Illuminati? Could it be the mafia? Could it be some evil? Well, the Bible says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's Psalm 51.5. 
Psalm 58.3 says, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I don't know why, but oftentimes man's wickedness causes us to go into shock. And you hear people say things like, I can't believe. Well, yes, you can believe. Man is wicked. We are totally depraved and need a Savior, someone to come and die for our wickedness. We need divine help. We need a relationship with Almighty God to save us from our wickedness. The first year I served here as pastor years ago in the early 90s, I was rather dismayed at the wickedness of people. I mean, the month I became pastor, we lost three leaders, one of whom was the worship leader. So after a few months of this, I took my family camping at Meridian State Park, and I started skipping rocks early that Saturday morning with my son, and I just had a conversation with God. I said, God, what's going on? I'm not having any fun. This isn't what I thought it would be. And the Lord spoke to my heart, brought to my remembrance something I knew. Just three words just burned in my heart. And the three words were, people are sinners. Duh! The light came on. An epiphany occurred. And I realized if people weren't sinners, there would be no need for a Savior. If people were not wicked, there would be no need for a church. When people sin and do wrong and hurt others, they do what they do best. It comes naturally. So when wickedness happens, let's not go into shock and become obsessed with darkness. This is what man does when he doesn't have a relationship with a Savior who is ruling and reigning in his life. Maybe you're appalled at the wickedness of some Christians. And I want you to know, God saves us just like we are, but he doesn't leave us that way. And so we should grow out of our foolishness as we pursue the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise are brought into the kingdom. And this is so that God shows his incredible mercy by saving folks who aren't very noble, aren't very wise, aren't very mighty. And so sometimes our lack of nobleness, our lack of wisdom, our lack of strength is exposed in times of testing. But with that exposure is a call to repent and to grow. So if you're appalled at yourself for the wickedness you see coming up out of you, It's a call to repent. It's not a call to give up and throw in the towel, but pursue the Lord more with all your heart and say, Lord, I I see you're still working on me. There's a group called the Hemp Hills that sang at my daddy's church when I was a kid. and They had a little girl that grew up and years later sang a song that became a hit on Christian radio called He's Still Working on Me. He's Still Working on Me. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. 
how loving and faithful he must be. He's still working on me. So is this why question answered with human error? Could be. Human evil? Could be. Or could it be Satan? Could it be the devil? We know that Jesus, speaking of evil, says that thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he came to bring life. Could it be the devil? Peter warns us in his first letter, chapter 5, to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, looking for an opportunity to get advantage of us. And some people stop right there and they don't read the rest of the thing. You know, just beware, there's a devil out there. He's wanting to get you. But he goes on and tells us what to do. Be of sober spirit. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So if it is the devil, we are to resist him. And we are promised not a rose garden, but we've promised a world with tribulation. But to be a good cheer, Christ has overcome the world. If he did promise a rose garden, roses have thorns anyway. So the idea of a problem-free life is an illusion. It's not biblical. It's not scriptural. And Satan can get involved. I'm not sure that he's behind getting the whole world sick. I don't know that he has that kind of power. But I know as a deceiver and a liar, he and his kingdom wait for opportunities to pounce on people, and he does it when they're at their weakest. So while you're quarantined, even though you're not sick, or while you're sick and you're waiting on recovery, Satan will come along or send one of his minions along. He's not omnipresent, but one of his spirits could come along and speak thoughts into your mind that would seem to be God or seem to be true or would seem to resonate with your past. Don't believe him. Resist him and be steadfast in your faith. Do not allow him to devour you. And rest assured, your God is going to strengthen, establish, and settle us after a little while. Why could it be futility? What is futility? This is an often overlooked biblical truth. Romans chapter 8. Verse 20 talks about this. It says, The creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but through the one who subjected it, on the basis of hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage or enslavement to corruption and have the glorious freedom of the children of God. He goes on in verse 22 to say, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption 
of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So creation is groaning because it's been subjected to futility. This is an imperfect planet. Nature is an imperfect system. And God has done it so that we would turn to him and put our hope in him and not in our creations or not in our forms of utopia. As they said on Star Trek, one episode I remember, all is futile, Captain. All is futile, friends, if you think you're going to have the perfect life on planet Earth. God has allowed it so that we would search for him as the human race. We would reach out to our creator and look for his will to be done in the earth and for him to use us in that process. So creation is groaning for this change. We are groaning. The older we get, the more we groan. But he goes on in Romans 8 to say the Holy Spirit is groaning. So God is yearning for this day of redemption to come. He can't wait to do it for us. And our bodies are yearning for the day of redemption to come. And creation is yearning for redemption to come. So is this plague, is this pestilence the result of the futility that the planet has been subjected to? Could be. It could be a combination of any of these things. Could this be God's judgment? Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So this, could this be a sign that judgment day is coming? Could be. Could be. I draw comfort from the fact that Noah and his family were given a way of escape. They participated in it by building the ark. Lot and his family were given a way of escape, and they all participated in it except for his wife. Paul when preaching to some unbelievers in Athens, Greece, in a park called Mars Hill, had these words to say. He said, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So, friend, there is a day of judgment coming, and are we ready is the question of the day. Are we ready? I know we want the why question answered, and I may not do a sufficient enough job to answer all of your why questions, but I assure you a day of judgment is coming, and being ready is of utmost importance. Do not be distracted by all the darkness that's in the world, by all the conspiracy theories, the fake news, the true news, who knows who, to, who, who knows what to believe. Fact is, the day of judgment is coming. 
And God is at work to redeem humanity to himself, and we have a part to play in that. So is it human error? Is it human evil? Is this thing happening in the earth because of the devil? Is it futility, just the result of living in a planet that's imperfect? Is it a sign that judgment day is coming? Or is it a wake-up call? Does God give his people wake-up calls? In the Old Testament, he did. He would send his people prophets. The children of Israel received prophets and leadership, wake-up calls, who would warn them about wickedness and would warn them about the consequences of their wickedness and would promise them what would happen if they would repent. Here's one that we often love to quote in prayer meetings. 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Wonderful promise, but it's in the midst of a wake-up call. Solomon in the kingdom of Israel that he was ruling over had just completed an incredible temple. They dedicated it to the Lord, and at night in a dream, God speaks this promise to Solomon. But the context of it is very sobering. God says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be opened and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. What an awesome promise. But look, God seems to make responsibility, take responsibility at certain points in history for droughts, plagues of locusts, and pestilence among his people. Is this that kind of thing today? I don't know, but I want us to observe what he goes on to say in verse 16. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, remember what Solomon became, and do according to all I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel." But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight and make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, the temple, they had been dedicated, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it, will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to the land and this house? So this promise was in the midst of a wake-up call. Did Solomon heed it? I think he did for a while, but eventually he fell into deep sin 
and idolatry, and his sons split the kingdom. And eventually, this glorious temple was destroyed. Years later, when God's people repented, they rebuilt it again. Herod came along and and continued the construction of this thing. And then Jesus came along and cleansed it of wickedness and predicted its destruction if people would not repent. And of course, we know they wanted Jesus to be destroyed, those that were in authority over that house, and that place was wiped out in 70 AD. So the question is, does God give wake-up calls? Does he give wake-up calls in the New Testament era? Does he do so in our day? There's a book in your New Testament called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's former, its real Greek name is Apocalypso, or the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus. Now, in our dictionaries and on the street, the word apocalypse has come to uh, mean destruction. But if that's what you think it means, then you have missed out on something. It's the revelation of Jesus. It is a wake-up call. It starts out in the first three chapters as a wake-up call to seven local churches in Asia Minor, in, in the place in the world now known as Turkey. The Lord Jesus Christ personally dictates seven letters to seven local churches. And he calls them by their name to the messenger or the angel, the leadership, basically, of the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Two of these places he pretty much had nothing but praise for. The other places... He maybe had some praise for them, but then he had some strong rebuke. So in answer to the question, does the Lord still give wake-up calls, I would say he does. Jesus in the New Testament, after his resurrection and ascension, appeared to the apostle John, his closest disciple, and dictated seven letters to these churches. And these letters were wake-up calls. They were calls to repentance to the church in Ephesus. They were a wonderful church. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Church in Ephesus, you've done all these great things. You're faithful. You're passionate for the truth, but you have left or lost your first love. The whole reason why you serve my purposes, you have lost with all this busyness. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. So if that speaks to you, could it be this hour in which we live when when we are limited in our comings and goings, 
Could it be the Lord is waking us up to return to our first love? Maybe we've been too busy with good things, if not evil things, and he's calling us to repent and to remember from where we have fallen and to restore our walk with the Lord, our first love for him. Are you as close to the Lord as you've ever been? You know, the fact is, we all can have a close walk with the Lord, but we're only as close to him as we want to be. So I'm, I'm even preaching to myself today. Are we as close to the Lord as we have been? And if not, why not? And are we closer to the Lord than we've ever been? If not, why not? So this is a call to us all to remember the journey we're on is because of our love for the Lord. It's not just good works for the sake of good works, not just obedience for the sake of checking off a list, but it's serving the Lord and his purposes out of a deep love and devotion to him. Let's look at this wake-up call to the church in Pergamos. He says, I know your works, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine or the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, Balaam was a prophet in Israel's journey through the Torah. A king named Balak was threatened by these millions of people trekking through the land, planning on settling. And he hired a prophet named Balaam to prophesy against them. And Balaam went through a series of difficulties and obstructions that the Lord had to do with. And he could only say good things about Israel when he did. And Balak was appalled. And it appears, if you read the story, that he failed. But if you read the next chapter, Israel fell into sin with the wild women from Balak's kingdom. Balaam was behind that. You don't see it as clearly in the Torah, but through oral tradition, it's understood what happened. And here it's reiterated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Balaam basically said, King Balak, I cannot say anything ill of these people. But if you'll send in the wild girls, you'll turn their God against them, and he will judge them, which is what happened. In this church were people leading people astray, getting them into sin and debauchery for the sake of getting an advantage over them, defrauding them, who knows, for the sake of their own pleasure. If you draw pleasure from sowing discord, shame on you. You need to repent. Stay away from the mischief. It's not good to do that. I remember years ago, there was a guy in town named Mr. Clark. I won't give his real name. If your name is Clark, God bless you. But this guy's name was Mr. Clark, and he would visit a church and begin to make friends and would get real emotional during worship, and then each service he would progress. This was his pattern. By the time he came here, he was church number four or five. 
He wreaked havoc in the first three churches. What he did was he would come to the front during worship and shake and bawl and squall and cry, and then uh, people would gather around him and pray for this poor man. And then after service, they would become friends with him, and then he would begin to give them prophecies. This took several weeks. He, he would begin to be prophetic, supposedly, and give them prophecies that would flatter them. And then over a period of weeks, the prophecies would become negative against the leadership of the church. So that when the leaders of the church had to deal with it, he had formed a little sympathy group, and he would cause people to leave that church. He was splitting churches. So when he came here, I saw this guy come to the front, shake and cry and bawl and squall, and I thought, okay, this is the guy. So I met him after service, and our loving people, they did the same thing. Loved him, caring for him. But I had some men prepared that if he does it again, we do not want to make him leave, but let's just take him to the back of the room, and uh, we don't want him to get into this prophecy thing, flattering people, and then drawing people to himself, and then turning them against leaders of the church. Sure enough, the next Sunday, I think this was his third Sunday, he came to the front and started doing the same thing. So a couple brothers came forward as I had prepared them, and they walked him to the back of our room and said, Brother, we don't want to interrupt what God's doing, but you're drawing attention to yourself. And instead of stopping in the back of the room, he continued walking out and made it look like we had made him leave the church. And we lost some new members over that. I had a man tell me, you're quenching the spirit. I said, you do not understand. This guy is a Balaam. This guy is sowing discord. So I figured out how to get a hold of him. And I said, Mr. Clark, I need to meet with you. And so we met at our courthouse at the gazebo. I don't know why I'm telling this story. But we met at the courthouse gazebo. And I said, tell me about yourself. Why are you doing what you're doing? You've done, you've done discord. We were church number five. You've done discord in four other churches, and this is your pattern. He didn't disagree with me. I said, what are you doing? This is not good for you. He said, I've been sent here by Satan to sow discord in the churches. I said, well, that's not good. It's not going to go good for you. You're going to hurt the churches, but in the long run, you're going to get hurt the most. Tell me about yourself. So I really wanted to find out about him and found out he had a family. He had children, little children in California that he hadn't seen in a long time, that he wasn't communicating with, that he was estranged from. And I stood up and put my finger in his face, and I rebuked him. I said, how dare you so discord with God's children when you have responsibility with your own children that you're not paying attention to. He got up and began to walk away from me, and I followed him, rebuking him all the way. And the last time I saw him, he ran down the road as I'm running after him, rebuking him, telling him, you need to go to California and take care of business. Your children need you. You don't need to be doing this foolishness. This is not good for you. He left town. I found out later he didn't even go to his job and get his paycheck. 
he was gone. So sometimes in churches, there are Balaam characters that rise up and you have to deal with them. What is this doctrine of the Nicolaitans that the Lord hates? Well, there's two views of thought. One view of thought for Nicolaitans is there was a guy named Nikolai who taught that people can sin and get by with it, that it's okay to sin, there won't be any consequences, just go ahead and live a lewd, immoral life. The Lord loves you just like you are, and he wants to leave you like you are. This doctrine's abounding in our land today. If you're preaching this stuff, shame on you. You need to repent and knock it off. It's not going to go well for you, leading God's people astray. Another view of thought is it's breaking down the word of Nico, which means victory or to overcome or to dominate. The word Nike is related to the word Nico, Greek word, and the word laity, Nicolaity, to oppress the laity. Laity means people, layperson, laity, people, church members, to oppress the church members. It's not God's will that pastors be dictators, autocrats, running everything on their own and oppressing God's people and skinning the sheep. That's not right. The Lord hates it. And if that's you, you need to repent before you deal with consequences. Another wake-up call was to the church in Thyatira. The Lord says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So your works are increasing. You're doing good stuff and more than you ever did. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. What is that about? I don't know. We can only guess, and I'm not going to get into that today. The fact is, this was a wake-up call, and these people were vulnerable to, to a pestilence of some kind. It doesn't mean just because someone is sick, they have sinned, but there are people the Lord healed, and he would say, go and sin no. So it is possible. So if there's some immoral immorality going in your life, repent. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word pornos. It means fornication. Pornography is pictures that are related to fornication. It's sexual activity outside a relationship between a husband and his wife. Some people dare say Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. I dare say he did. He didn't single out homosexuals. He dealt with it all at the level of fornication. It is all fornication, and you need to repent. It could lead to diseases and other chaos in your life. Repent. The wake-up call of the church in Sardis. The Lord says, I know your works that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, 
that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Repent, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So this church was dead, hypocritical, pretending to be alive, pretending, faking their devotion to the Lord, but there was something not genuine there. These churches don't exist anymore. There is a presence in Philadelphia that is still there today a form of a Christian church. They need revival. Well, we all do, but they really do. These churches don't exist. Was it just persecution that wiped them all out? Or did the Lord shut them down? When God removes a church's lampstand, is he shutting it down or removing his blessing? I don't know. The fact I'm making here today is he does give wake-up calls, and these are some examples. Now, let's look at this last church, Laodicea because I think it relates to us the most. He tells this church, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were hot or cold, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, those verses often are read in evangelism. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me. But that statement is made by the Lord to a church to his people. Hello, let me in. Have we become like Laodicea and the Lord has to knock on our door? He has to interrupt our activities? Are we open to what he wants to do in our lives? I'm asking myself that question. May we not become satisfied in our prosperity and our health and our good works and our religion in our buildings, could it be the threat of losing these things is returning us back to the heart of what it's all about? And that's a living, genuine, integrity-packed relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I've laid a heavy word on your people because you've laid it on my heart. I pray, Lord, that we would seek you with all of our hearts and not get caught up in the wise without searching our hearts, Lord. Where are we in this? Well, we know that your word says that judgment begins at your house. So, Lord, wake us up. Could you not be preparing us for the greatest revival the world has ever seen?
could it be? Amen. Why? I don't know. Human error, human evil, the devil futility, judgment, wake-up call. But I say, let's get as much mileage out of it as we can and grow in him. If you've not been discipling your kids, it's time to do it. If you have been, it's time to take it to another level. Let's not waste our sorrows. Let's not uh, squander this opportunity to grow in our own relationship with the Lord and as a family, growing closer to the Lord and discipling our kids. Children are amazing. We have a granddaughter that recorded a video on the site that serves her school in her classroom. And she shared in just a matter of seconds the gospel with her teacher and her classmates. And I know I'm a proud grandpa, and if you'll let me do this, I want to show show this video in conclusion. But I want you to know that all of our kids can do things like that this is a fruit of a mama and a daddy ministering to their kids while they have extra time. Could it be we have allowed the state to take too much of our responsibility away from us in parenting our kids and expecting the church to make up the difference when the primary disciple of children is the parents? Children are so important. So I leave you with this. Do not miss out on this opportunity and take it as a wake-up call. Don't get caught up in all the conspiracies and not draw close to the Lord. If you've become addicted to anger, back off of social media and all the theories that are out there and take advantage of this season to draw closer to the Lord, to have prayer with your kids at night and in the morning and at noontime to read them the scriptures, and to be sensitive when they are the most spiritual. If your young ones are little enough that you bathe them, sometimes bath time is their most spiritual time, and you'll be surprised at the songs they'll sing of adoration for the Lord during that time. I believe we're going to come through this stronger as a congregation and as a people and as a collection of the Lord's families. Let's go for it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Here's one of our grandkids, Brynlyn, sharing the gospel with her classmates one evening on her own, on her papa's computer, posting on the classroom's digital bulletin board of some sort. God bless you. After this will be Kids Church. Hi, Ms. Witkowski. Hi, friends. I wanted to say I hope you do not get sick. And I hope you had a great Passover and a good Palm Sunday and a good Easter. And I hope everyone got, got a lot of fun stuff on Easter. And I wanted to say you are so special because God made you and Jesus died on the cross for our sins. 
And if you don't know that, you know that now. And I just hope you will have a good sleep and have no bad dreams tonight. And I'm putting this, I put this music on because it means to me, Jesus is real to me. Bye guys, love you.